Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. I'm your host, Tyler, and we are going to be continuing to read The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Um, I would like to remind everyone, this is an explicit podcast, so you are warned. Um... So, recently, I, um, I was, when I was setting up this podcast, I was originally going to be trying to record, uh, with my microphone plugged into my laptop, um, instead of my desktop, because my laptop is quieter, and so there wouldn't be as much background noise, um, giving a, a cleaner audio recording and all that. However, um, for some reason, my plug-and-play mic really doesn't like my, um, my laptop. Uh, it gives a really garbled, um, just, it's like a digitized, horrible sounding, um, recording anytime I try to record anything on there. Uh, even though I'm using the same program, um, same microphone, everything, um, uh, for some reason my laptop just hates the microphone, so... Um, I contacted the support, and they were like, that's really weird, um, no, it should just be plug-and-play, we don't even have any, like, drivers to offer you, because it's literally just plug-and-play, so they're sending a new microphone, um, and, like, not just a new one of the same one I have, there's a new generation of microphone from this company, so, so, yeah, um, that's working out. I'm, I'm getting a brand new microphone because uh, mine was still under warranty and they assumed it was something wrong with that. Although, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it's something I need to reset on my laptop. Either way, I'm okay getting a new microphone. <laughs> anyway, um, let's see. Where are we? Let's see. Chapter 8. Thieves, heretics, and whores. I, I, I warned you. If this story is to be something resembling my book of deeds, we must begin at the beginning, at the heart of who I truly am. To do this, you must remember that before I was anything else, I was one of the Edemaru. That's spelled E-D-E-M-A-R-U-H. Edemaru. Contrary to popular belief, not all traveling performers are of the rue. My troupe was not some poor batch of mummers japing at crossroads for pennies singing for our suppers. We were court performers, Lord Greyfellow's men. Our arrival in most towns was more of an event than the midwinter pageantry and solenade games rolled together. There were usually at least eight wagons in our troupe, and well over two dozen performers, actors and acrobats, musicians and hand magicians, jugglers and jesters, my family. My father was a better actor and musician than any you have ever seen. My mother had a natural gift for words. They were both beautiful, with dark hair and easy laughter. They were rue down to their bones, and that, really, is all that needs to be said. Save, perhaps, that my mother was a noble before she was a trooper. She told me my father had lured her away from a miserable, dreary hell, with sweet music and sweeter words. I could only assume she meant three crossings where we went to visit relatives when I was very young. Once. <laughs> uh, one of those families. Oh, yeah, sure, we'll visit. But only when we can't avoid it. Um, okay, anyway, um... My parents were never really married, by which I mean they never bothered making their relationship official with any church. I'm not embarrassed by the fact. They considered themselves married and didn't see much point in announcing it to any government or God. I respect that. In truth, they seemed more content and faithful than many officially married couples I have seen since. Our patron was Baron Greyfellow and his name opened many doors that would ordinarily be closed to the Edemaru. In return, we wore his colors, green and gray, and added to his reputation wherever we went. Once a year, we spent two span at his manor, 
entertaining him and his household. It was a happy childhood, growing up in the center of an endless fair. My father would read to me from the great monologues during the long wagon rides between towns. Reciting mostly from memory, his voice would roll down the road for a quarter mile. I remember reading along, coming in on the secondary parts. My father would encourage me to try particularly good sections myself, and I learned to love the feel of good words. My mother and I would make up songs together. Other times my parents would act out romantic dialogues while I followed along in the books. They seemed like games at the time. Little did I know how cunningly I was being taught. I was a curious child, quick with questions and eager to learn. With acrobats and actors as my teachers, it is little wonder that I never grew to dread lessons as most ch children do. The roads were safer in those days, but cautious folk would still travel with our troop for safety's sake. They supplemented my education. I learned an eclectic smattering of commonwealth law from a traveling barrister too drunk or too pompous to realize he was lecturing an eight-year-old. I learned woodcraft from a huntsman named Lackliffe, who traveled with us for nearly a whole season. I learned the sordid inner workings of the royal court in Modeg from a courtesan. As my father used to say, call a jack a jack, call a spade a spade, but always call a whore a lady. Their lives are hard enough, and it never hurts to be polite. Hetera smelled vaguely of cinnamon, and at nine years old I found her fascinating without exactly knowing why. She taught me I should never do anything in private that I didn't want talked about in public, and cautioned me not to talk in my sleep. And then there was Abanthi, my first real teacher. He taught me more than all the others set end to end. If not for him, I would never have become the man I am today. I ask you not to hold it against him. He meant well. You'll have to move along, the mayor said. That's just me shifting on my seat. I'm not, not uh, gassy. Um, You'll have to move along, the mayor said. Camp outside town and no one will bother you so long as you don't start any fights or wander off with anything that isn't yours. He gave my father a significant look. Then be on your merry way tomorrow. No performances. They're more trouble than they're worth. We are licensed, my father said, pulling out a folded piece of parchment from the inner pocket of his jacket. Charged to perform, in fact. The mayor shook his head and made no motion to look at our writ of patronage. It makes folks rowdy, he said firmly. Last time there was an unholy row during the play. Too much drinking, too much excitement. Folks tore the doors off the public house and smashed up the tables. The hall belongs to the town, you see. The town bears the expense of the repairs. By this time our wagons were drawing attention. Tripp was doing some juggling. Marion and his wife were putting on an impromptu string puppet show. I was watching my father from the back of our wagon. We certainly would not want to offend you or your patron, the mayor said. However, the town can ill afford another evening such as that. As a gesture of goodwill, I'm willing to offer you a copper each, say twenty pennies, and simply to be on your way and not make any trouble for us here. Now, you have to understand that twenty pennies might be a good bit of money for some little ragamuffin troop living hand to mouth, but for us, it was simply insulting. He should have offered us forty to play for the evening, free use of the public hall, a good meal, and beds at the inn. The last we would graciously decline, as their beds were no doubt lousy, and um, those in our wagons were not. If my father was surprised or insulted, he did not show it. Pack up, he shouted over one shoulder. Trip tucked his juggling stones into various pockets without so much as a flourish. There was a disappointed chorus from several dozen townsfolk as the puppets stopped mid-jape and were packed away. The mayor looked relieved, brought out his purse, and pulled out two silver pennies. "'I'll be sure to tell the baron of your gener generosity,' my father said carefully as the mayor lay the pennies into his hand. The mayor froze mid-motion. "'Baron?' "'Baron Greyfallow,' my father paused, looking for some spark of recognition on the mayor's face. "'Lord of the Eastern Marshes. "'Good gracious, what is this word? "'Okay. Um, "'Lord of the Eastern Marshes, Hudumbran by Thirin, and 
Widen Widecont Hills. What Widicont Hills, maybe? Um my father looked around at the horizon. We are still in the Widicont Hills, aren't we? Well, yes, the mayor said. But Squire Semelan Oh, we're in Semelan's fief, my father exclaimed, looking around as if just now getting his bearings. Thin gentleman, tidy little beard. He brushed his chin with the with his fingers. The mayor nodded numbly. Charming fellow, lovely singing voice. Met him when we were entertaining the baron last midwinter. Of course. The mayor paused significantly. Might I see your writ? I watched as the mayor read it. It took him a little while, as my father had not bothered to mention the majority of the baron's titles, such as Viscount of Montrone and Lord of Trelliston. The upshot was this. It was true that the squire Semelan controlled this little town and all the land around it, but Semelan owed fealty directly to Greyfellow. In more concrete terms, Greyfellow was captain of the ship. Semelan scrubbed the planking and saluted him. <laughs> yeah, that, that does put it in perspective. in perspective. The mayor refolded the parchment and handed it back to my father. I see. That was all. I remember being stunned when the mayor didn't apologize or offer my father more money. My father paused as well, then continued. The city is your jurisdiction, sir, but we'll perform either way. It will either be here or just outside city limits. You can't use the public house, the mayor said firmly. I won't have it wrecked again. We can play right here, my father pointed to the market square. It will be enough space, and it keeps everyone right here in town. The mayor hesitated, though I could hardly believe it. We sometimes chose to play on the green because the local buildings weren't big enough. Two of our wagons were built to become stages for just that eventuality. But in my whole eleven years of memory, I could barely count on both hands the times we'd been forced to play the green. We had never played outside the city limits. But we were spared that. The mayor nodded at last and gestured my father closer. I slipped out the back of the wagon and moved close enough to catch the end of what he said. God-fearing folk around here, nothing vulgar or heretical. We had a double handful of trouble with the last troop that came through here. Two fights, folks missing their laundry, and one of Branston's daughters got herself in a family way. I was outraged. I waited for my father to show the mayor the sharp side of his tongue, to explain the difference between mere traveling performers and Edimaru. We didn't steal. We never... We would never let things get so out of control that a bunch of drunks ruined the hall where we were playing. But my father did nothing of the sort. He just nodded and walked back toward our wagon. He gestured, and Trip started juggling again. The puppets reemerged from their cases. As he came around the wagon, he saw me standing, half-hidden beside the horses. "'I'm guessing you heard the whole thing from the look on your face,' he said with a wry grin. "'Let it go, my boy.' He gets full marks for honesty, if not for grace. He just says out loud what other folk keep in the quiet of their hearts. Why do you think I have everyone stay in pairs when we go about our business in bigger towns? I knew it for the truth. Still, it was a hard pill for a young boy to swallow. Twenty pennies, I said scathingly, as if he were offering us charity. That was the hardest part of growing up Idimaru. We are strangers everywhere. Many folk view us as vagabonds and beggars, while others deem us little more than thieves, heretics, and whores. It's hard to be wrongfully accused, but it's worse when the people looking down on you are clods who have never read a book or traveled more than twenty miles from the place they were born. My father laughed and roughed my hair. Just pity him, my boy. Tomorrow we'll be on our way, but he'll have to keep his own disagreeable company until the day he dies. He's an ignorant blatherskate, I said bitterly. He lay a firm hand on my shoulder, letting me know I'd said enough. This is what comes of getting clo too close to enter, I suppose. Tomorrow we'll head south. Greener pastures, kinder folk, prettier women. He cupped an ear towards the wagon and nudged me with his elbow. I can hear everything you say, my mother called sweetly from inside. My father grinned and winked at me. So what play are we going to do? I asked my father. Nothing vulgar, mind you. They're God-fearing folk in these parts. He looked at me. What would you pick? I gave it a long moment's thought. I'd play something from the Brightfield cycle. 
the forging of the path or some such. My father made a face. Not a very good play. I shrugged. They won't know the difference. Besides, it's chock full of telu, so no one will complain about it being vulgar. I looked up at the sky. I just hope it doesn't rain on us halfway through. My father looked up at the clouds. It will. Still, there are worse things than playing in the rain. Like playing in the rain and getting shimmed on the deal? I asked. The mayor hurried up to us, moving at a fast walk. There was a thin sheen of sweat on his forehead, and he was puffing a little bit, as if he'd been running. I talked it over with a few members of the council, and we decided that it would be quite all right for you to use the public house if you would care to. My father's body language was perfect. It was perfectly clear he was offended, but far too polite to say anything. I, certain, I certainly wouldn't want to put you out. No, no, no bother at all. I insist, in fact. Very well, if you insist. The mayor smiled and hurried away. Well, that's a little better, my father sighed. No need to tighten our belts yet. Half penny a head, that's right. Anyone without a head gets sin free. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Trip was working the door, making sure everyone paid to see the play. Half penny a head, though by the rosy glow in your lady's cheeks, I should be charging you for a head and a half. Not that it's any of my business, mind you. Trip had the quickest tongue of anyone in the troop, which made him the best man for the job of making sure no one tried to fast talk or bully their way inside. Wearing his green and gray dressers motley, Trip could say just about anything and get away with it. Hello, Mum. No charge for the little one, but if he starts to squawk, you'd best give him the tit quick or take him outside. Trip carried on his unending patter. That's right, halfpenny. Yes, sir. Empty head still pays full price. <laughs> Oh, for that kind of wit. Though it was always fun to watch Trip work, most of my attention was on a wagon that had rolled into the other end of town about a quarter hour ago. The mayor had argued with the old man driving it, then stormed off. Now I saw the mayor heading back to the wagon, accompanied by a tall fellow carrying a long cudgel, the constable, unless I missed my guess. My curiosity got the best of me, and I made my way toward the wagon, doing my best to stay out of sight. The mayor and the old man were arguing again, and by the time I got close enough to hear, oh, by the time I got close enough to hear, the constable stood nearby, looking irritated. Told you, I don't need a license. I don't have a license. I don't need a license. Does a peddler need a license? Does a tinker need a license? You're not a tinker, the mayor said. Don't try to pass yourself off as one. I'm not trying to pass myself off as anything, the old man snapped. I'm a tinkler and a peddler, and I'm more than both. I'm an arcanist, you great dithering heap of idiot. My point exactly, the mayor said doggedly. We're God-fearing people in these parts. We don't want any meddling with dark things better left alone. We don't want the trouble of your kind, your kind can bring. My kind? The old man said. What do you know about my kind? There probably hasn't been an arcanist through these parts in fifty years. We like it that way. Just turn around and go back the way you came. Like hell if I'm spending a night in the rain because of your thick head, the man said hotly. I don't need your permission to rent a room or do business in the street. Now get away from me or I'll show you firsthand what sort of trouble my kind can be. Fear flashed across the mayor's face before it was overwhelmed by outrage. He gestured over one shoulder at the constable. Then you'll spend the night in jail for vagrancy and threatening behavior. We'll let you on your way in the morning if you've learned to keep a civil tongue in your head. The constable advanced on the wagon, his cudgel held cautiously at his side. The old man stood his ground and raised one hand. A deep red light welled up from the front corners of his wagon. That's far enough, he said ominously. Things could get utter uh, <coughs> goodness. Things could get ugly otherwise. After a moment's surprise, I realized the strange light came from a pair of sympathy lamps the old man had mounted on his wagon. I had seen one before, in Lord Greyfellow's library. They were brighter than gaslight, steadier than candles or lamps, and lasted nearly forever. They were also terribly expensive. I was willing to bet that no one in this little town had ever heard of them, let alone seen one. The constable stopped in his tracks when the light began to swell, but when nothing else seemed to happen, he set his jaw and kept walking toward the wagon. The old, man the old man's expression grew anxious. Now hold on a moment, he said as the red light began Red light from the wagon started to fade. We don't want... Shut your clapper, you old shit-fire, the constable said. 
He snatched at the arcanist's arm as if he were sticking his hand into an oven. Then, when nothing happened, he smiled and grew more confident. Don't think I won't knock you a good one to keep you from working any more of your devilry. Well done, Tom, the mayor said, radiating relief. Bring him along and we'll send someone back for the wagon. The constable grinned and grinned and twisted the old man's arm. The arcanist bent at the waist and gasped a short, painful breath. From where I hid, I saw the arcanist's face change from anxious to pained to angry all in a second. I saw his mouth move. A furious gust of wind came out of nowhere, as if a storm had suddenly burst with no warning. The wind struck the old man's wagon, and it tipped onto two wheels before slamming back down onto four. The constable, stagger, the constable staggered and fell, as if he had been struck by the hand of God. Even where I hid nearly thirty feet away, the wind was so strong that I was forced to take a step forward, as if I had been pushed roughly from behind. "'Be gone!' the old man shouted angrily. "'Trouble me no longer.' I will set fire to your blood and fill you with a fear like ice and iron. There was something familiar about his words, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Both the mayor and the constable turned tail and ran, their eyes white and wild as startled horses. The wind faded as quickly as it had come. The whole sudden burst couldn't have lasted more than five seconds. As most of the townsfolk were gathered around the public house, I doubted anyone had seen it except for me, the mayor, the constable, and the old man's donkeys who stood placidly in their harness utterly unperturbed. Leave this place clean of your foul presence, the arcanist muttered to himself as he watched them go. By the power of my name I command it to be so. I finally realized why his words seemed so familiar. He was quoting lines from the exorcism scene in Deonica. Not many folks knew that play. The old man turned back to his wagon and began to extemporize. I'll turn you into butter on a summer day. I'll turn you into a poet with the soul of a priest. I'll fill you with lemon custard and push you out a window, he spat. Bastards. His irritation seemed to leave him, and he heaved a great weary sigh. Well, that couldn't have gone much worse, the old man muttered as he rubbed at the shoulder of the arm the constable had twisted. Do you think they'll come back with a mob behind them? For a second I thought the old man was talking to me. Then I realized the truth. He was talking to his donkeys. I don't think so either, he said to them. But I've been wrong before. Let's stay near the edge of town and have a look at the last of the oats, shall we? He clambered up into the back of the wagon and came down with a wide bucket and a nearly empty burlap sack. He upended the sack into the bucket and seemed disheartened by the results. He took out a handful for himself before nudging the bucket toward the donkeys with his foot. Don't give me that look, he said to them. It's short rations all around. Besides, you can graze. He petted one donkey while he ate his handful of rough oats, stopping occasionally to spit out a husk. It struck me as very sad, this old man all alone on the road with no one to talk to but his donkeys. It's hard for us, Itimaru, but at least we had each other. This man had no one. We've wandered... Too far from civilization, boys. The folk that need me don't trust me, and the ones that trust me can't afford me. The old man peered into his purse. We've got a penny and a half, so our options are limited. Do we want to be wet tonight or hungry tomorrow? We're not going to do any business, so it will probably be one or the other. I slunk around the edge of the building until I could see what was written on the side of the old man's wagon. It read, Abinthe. Arcanist extraordinary, scribe, dowser, chemist, dentist, rare goods, all ailments tended, lost items found, anything mended, no horoscopes, no love potions, no malefaction. Abinthe noticed me as soon as I stepped out from behind the building where I'd been hiding. Hello there. Can I help you? You've misspelled ailments, I pointed out. He looked surprised. It's a joke, actually, he explained. I brew a bit. Oh, ale, I said, nodding. I get it. I brought my hand out of my pocket. Can you sell me anything for a penny? He seemed stuck between amusement and curiosity. What are you looking for? I'd like some lacilium. We had performed Farian the Fair a dozen times in the last month, and it, it had filled my young mind with intrigue and assassination. 
Are you expecting someone to poison you? He said, someone somewhat taken aback. Not really. But it seems to me that if you wait around until you know you need an antidote, it's probably too late to pick one up. I suppose I could sell you a penny's worth, he said. That would be about a dose for a person your size. But it's dangerous stuff in its own right. It only cures certain poisons. You can hurt yourself if you take it at the wrong time. Oh, I said. I didn't know that. In the play it was touted as an infallible cure-all. Abanthe tapped his lips thoughtfully. Can you answer me a question in the meantime? I nodded. Whose troop is that? In a way it's mine, I said, but in another way it's my father's, because he runs the show and points which way the wagons go. But it's Baron Greyfellows, too, because he's our patron. We're Lord Greyfellows, men. The old man gave me an amused look. I've heard of you. Good troop. Good reputation. I nodded, not seeing any point in false modesty. Do you think your father might be interested in taking on any help? he asked. I don't claim to be much of an actor, but I'm handy to have around. I could make you face paint and rouge that aren't full of lead and mercury and arsenic. I can do lights, too. Quick, clean, and bright. Different colors if you want them. I didn't have to think too hard about it. Candles were expensive and vulnerable to drafts. Torches were dirty and dangerous. And everyone in the troupe learned the dangers of cosmetics at an early age. It was hard to become an old, seasoned trooper when you painted poison on yourself every third day, and it ended up raving mad by the time you were twenty-five. I may be overstepping a little, I said, as I held out my hand for him to shake, but let me be the first to welcome you to our troop. If this is to be a full and honest account of my life and deeds, I feel I should mention that my reasons for inviting Ben into our troop were not entirely altruistic. It's true that quality cosmetics and clean lights were a welcome addition to our troop. It's also true that I'd felt sorry for the old man alone on the road. But underneath it all, I was moved by my curiosity. I had seen Abanthe do something I could not explain, something strange and wonderful. Not his trick with the sympathy lamps. I recognized that for what it was, showmanship, a bluff to impress ignorant townsfolk. What he had done afterward was different. He called the wind, and the wind came. It was magic, real magic, the sort of magic I had heard about in stories of Taberlin the Great, the sort of magic I hadn't believed in since I was sick. Not sick, goodness. The sort of magic I hadn't believed in since I was six. Now I didn't know what to believe. So I invited him into our troop, hoping to find answers to my questions. Though I didn't know it at the time, I was looking for the name of the wind. Well, let's see, we're only at about a half hour. So let's see, how long is this next chapter? Hmm. Nine. Riding in the wagon with Ben. Abanthe was the first arcanist I ever met, a strange, exciting figure to a young boy. He was knowledgeable in all the sciences, botany, astronomy, psychology, anatomy, alchemy, geology, chemistry. He was portly, with twinkling eyes that moved quickly from one thing to another. He had a strip of dark gray hair running around the back of his head, but, and this is what I remember most about him, no eyebrows. Rather, he had them, but they were in a perpetual state of regrowing from being burned off in the course of his alchemical pursuits. It made him look surprised and quizzical all at once. He spoke gently, laughed often, and never exercised his wit at the expense of others. He cursed like a drunken sailor with a broken leg, but only at his donkeys. They were called Alpha and Beta, and Abanthe fed them carrots and lumps of sugar when he thought no one was looking. Chemistry was his particular love, and my father said he'd never known a man to run a better still. By his second day in our troop, I was making a habit of riding in his wagon. I could ask him questions, and he would answer. Then he would ask for songs, and I would pluck them out for him on a lute I borrowed from my father's wagon. He would even sing from time to time. He had a bright, reckless tenor that was always wandering off, looking for notes in the wrong places. 
More often than not, he stopped and laughed at himself when it happened. He was a good man, and there was no conceit in him. Not long after he joined our troop, I asked Abenthi what it was like being an arcanist. He gave me a thoughtful look. Have you ever known an arcanist? We paid one to mend a cracked axle on the road once, I paused to think. He was heading inland with a caravan of fish. Abenthi made a dismissive gesture. No, no, boy, I'm talking about arcanists, not some poor chill charmer who works his way back and forth across caravan routes, trying to keep fresh meat from rotting. What's the difference? I asked, sensing it was expected of me. Well, he said, that might take a bit of explaining. I've got nothing but time. Abenthi gave me an appraising look. I've... I'd been waiting for it. It was the look that said, You don't sound as young as you look. I hoped he'd come to grips with it fairly soon. It gets tiresome being spoken to as if you are a child, even if you happen to be one. He took a deep breath. Just because someone knows a trick or two doesn't mean they're an arcanist. They might know how to set a bone, or read Eldvintic. Maybe they even know a little sympathy, but... Sympathy? I interrupted as politely as possible. You'd probably call it magic, Abenthi said reluctantly. It's not, really, he shrugged, but even knowing sympathy doesn't make you an arcanist. A true arcanist has worked his way through the arcanum at the university. At his mention of the arcanum, I bristled with two dozen new questions, not so many you might think, but when you added them to the half hundred questions I carried with me whenever I went, Wherever I went, I was stretched nearly to bursting. Only through a severe effort of will did I remain silent, waiting for Abenthi to continue on his own. Abenthi, however, noticed my reaction. So you've heard about the Arcanum, have you? He seemed amused. Tell me what you've heard, then. This small prompt was all the excuse I needed. I heard from a boy in Temper Glen that if your arm's cut off, they can sew it back on at the university. Can they really? Some stories say Taberlin the Great went there to learn the names of all things. There's a library with a thousand books. Are there really that many? He answered the last question, the others having rushed by too quickly for the, him to respond. More than a thousand, actually. Ten times ten thousand books. More than that. More books than you could ever read. Abenthi's voice grew vaguely wistful. More books than I could read? Somehow I doubted that. Ben continued, The people you see riding with caravans, charmers who keep food from spoiling, dousers, fortune-tellers, toad-eaters, aren't real arcanists any more than all traveling performers are Edemaru. They might know a little alchemy, a little sympathy, a little medicine. He shook his head. But they're not arcanists. A lot of people pretend to be. They wear robes and put on airs to take advantage of the ignorant and gullible. But here's how you tell a true arcanist. Abenthi pulled a fine chain over his head and handed it to me. It was the first time I had ever seen an, Ar an arcanum gilder. It looked rather unimpressive, just a flat piece of lead with some unfamiliar writing stamped onto it. That is a true gilthi, or gilder, if you prefer. Abenthi explained with some satisfaction. It's the only sure way to be certain of who is and who isn't an arcanist. Your father asked to see mine before he let me ride with your troop. It shows he's a man of the world. He watched me with a sly disinterest. Uncomfortable, isn't it? I gritted my teeth and nodded. My hand had gone numb as soon as I'd touched it. I was curious to study the markings on its front and back, but after the space of two breaths, my arm was numb to the shoulder as if I had slept on it all night long. I wondered if my whole body would go numb if I held it long enough. I was prevented from finding out, as the wagon hit a bump and my numbed hand almost let Abenthi's gilder fall to the footboard of the wagon. He snatched it up and slipped it back over his head, chuckling. How can you stand it? I asked, trying to rub a little feeling back into my hand. It only feels that way to other people, he explained. To its owner, it's just warm. That's how you can tell the difference between an arcanist and someone who just has a knack for finding water or guessing at the weather. 
Trip has something like that. He rolls sevens. That's a little different, Aventheu laughed. Not anything so unexplainable as a knack. He slouched a little farther down into his seat, down into his seat, probably for the best. A couple hundred years ago, a person was good as dead if folk saw he had a knack. The Tellins call them demon signs and burned folk if they had them. Aventhe's mood seemed to have taken a downward turn. We had to break Trip out of jail once or twice, I said, trying to lighten the tone of the conversation. But no one actually tried to burn him. Aventhe gave a tired smile. I suspect Trip has a pair of clever dice, or an equally clever skill, which probably extends to cards as well. I thank you for your timely warning, but a knack is something else entirely. I can't abide being patronized. Trip can't cheat to save his life, I said, a little more sharply than I intended. And anyone in the troop can tell good dice from bad. Trip throws sevens. It doesn't matter whose dice he uses, he rolls sevens. If he bets on someone, they roll sevens. If he so much as bumps a table with loose dice on it, seven. Hmm, Abenthe nodded to himself. My apologies, that does sound like a knack. I'd be curious to see it. I nodded. Take your own dice. We haven't let him play for years, a thought occurred to me. It might not still work. He shrugged. Knacks don't go away so easily as that. When I was growing up in Staup, I... That's S-T-A-U-P. Staup. Um, I knew a young man with a knack. Uncommonly good with plants. Abenthe's grin was gone as soon as he... I'm sorry. Was gone as he looked off at something I couldn't see. His tomatoes would be red while everyone's vine, everyone else's vines were still climbing. His squash were bigger and sweeter. His grapes didn't hardly have to be bottled before they started being wine. He trailed off, his eyes far away. Did they burn him? I asked with morbid curiosity of the young. What? No, of course not. I'm not that old. He scowled at me in mock severity. There was a drought, and he got run out of town. His poor mother was heartbroken. There was a moment of silence, two wagons ahead of us. I heard Taryn and Shandy rehearsing lines from The Swineheart and the Nightingale. Abenthe seemed to be listening as well in an offhand way. After Taryn got himself lost halfway through Fane's garden monologue, I turned back to face him. Do they teach acting at the university? I asked. Abenthe shook his head, slightly amused by the question. Many things, but not that. I looked over at Apenthe and saw him watching me. His eyes danced. Could you teach me some of those other things? I asked. He smiled, and it was as easy as that. Apenthe proceeded to give me a brief overview of each of the sorry, of each of the sciences. Word is split across lines, so I was almost gonna say like scribing or something like that. <laughs> Apenthe proceeded to give me a brief overview of each of the sciences. While his main love was for chemistry, he believed in a rounded education. I learned how to work the sextant, the compass, the slipstick, the abacus. More important, I learned to do without. Within a span, I could identify any chemical in his cart. In two months, I could distill liquor until it was too strong to drink, bandage a wound, set a bone, and diagnose hundreds of sicknesses from symptoms. I knew the process for making four different aphrodisiacs, three concoctions for contraception, nine for impotence, and two um, and two filtres referred to simply as maiden's helper. Oh, yes, I suppose that's probably a, a uh, an abortion pill of sorts. Uh, Abenthe was rather vague about the purpose of the last of these, but I had some strong suspicions. I learned the, like a, like a plan B type, um, I learned the formulae for dozen for a dozen poisons and acids and a hundred medicines and cure-alls, some of which even worked. I doubled my herb lore in theory, if not in practice. Abenthe started to call me Red, and I called him Ben, first in retaliation, then in friendship. Only now, far after the fact, do I recognize how carefully Ben prepared me for what was to come at the university. He did it subtly. Once or twice a day, mixed in with my normal lectures, Ben would present me with a little mental exercise I would have to master before we went on to anything else. He made me play Tyranny without a board, keeping track of the stones in my head, 
sort of like mental chess, I suppose. Other times, he would stop in the middle of a conversation and make me repeat everything said in the last few minutes, word for word. This was levels beyond the simple memorization I had practiced for the stage. My mind was learning to work in different ways, becoming stronger. It felt the same way your body feels after a day of splitting wood or swimming or sex. You feel exhausted, languorous, and almost godlike. This feeling was similar, except it was my intellect that was weary and expanded, languid and latently powerful. I could feel my mind starting to awaken. I seemed to gain momentum as I progressed, like when water starts to wash away the dam made of sand. A dam made of sand. I don't know if you understand what a geometric progression is, but that is the best way to describe it. Through it all, Ben continued to teach me mental exercises that I was half convinced he constructed out of sheer meanness. <laughs> oh, this next chapter is very short. Oh, okay, okay, I'll read chapter 10, too. All right. 10. Alar and seven, sorry, Alar and several stones. Ben held up a chunk of dirty field stone, slightly bigger than his fist. What will happen if I let go of this rock? I thought for a bit. Simple questions during lesson time were very seldom simple. I, finally, I gave the obvious answer. It will probably fall. He raised an eyebrow. I had kept him busy over the last several months, and he hadn't had the leisure to accidentally burn them off. Probably. You sound like a sophist, boy. Hasn't it always fallen before? I stuck my tongue out at him. Don't try to boldface your way through this one. That's a fallacy. You taught me that yourself. He grinned. Fine. Would it be fair to say you believe it will fall? Fair enough. I want you to believe it will fall up when I let go of it. His grin widened. I tried. It was like doing mental gymnastics. After a while, I nodded. Okay. How well do you believe it? Not very well, I admitted. I want you to believe this rock will float away. Believe it with a faith that will move mountains and shake trees. He paused and seemed to take a different tack. Do you believe in God? Talu? After a fashion. Not good enough. Do you believe in your parents? I gave a little smile. Sometimes. I can't see them right now. He snorted and unhooked the slapstick he used to goad Alpha and Beta when they were being lazy. Do you believe in this, Elir? He only called me Elir. Oh, that's E apostrophe L-I-R. When he thought I was being especially willfully obstinate. He held out the stick for my inspection. There was a malicious glitter in his eyes. I decided not to attempt fate. Yes. Good. He slapped the side of the wagon with it, producing a sharp crack. One of Alpha's ears pivoted around at the noise, uncertain as to whether or not it was directed at her. That's the sort of belief I want. It's called Alar, riding crop belief. When I drop this stone, it will float away, free as a bird. He brandished the slapstick a bit. And none of your petty philosophy, or I'll make you sorry you ever took a shining to that little game. I nodded, cleared my mind with one of the tricks I'd already learned, and bore down on believing. I started to sweat. After what may have been ten minutes, I nodded again. He let go of the rock. It fell. I began to get a headache. He picked the rock back up. Do you believe that it floated? No. I sulked, rubbing my temples. Good. It didn't. Never fool yourself into perceiving things that don't exist. It's a fine line to walk, but sympathy is not an art for the weak-willed. He held out the rock again. Do you believe it will float? It didn't. It doesn't matter. Try again. He shook the stone. Alar is the cornerstone of sympathy. If you are going to impose your will on the world, you must have control over what you believe. I tried and I tried. It was the most difficult thing I had ever done. It took me almost all afternoon. I tried. Oh, let's see. Hang on. It took me almost all afternoon. I think I... Let me just start over from there. I tried and I tried. It was the most difficult thing I had ever done. It took me almost all afternoon. Finally, Ben was able to drop the rock, and I retained my firm belief that it wouldn't fall despite evidence to the contrary. I heard the thump 
of the rock, and I looked at Ben. I've got it, I said, calmly, feeling more than a little smug. He looked at me out of the corner of his eye, as if he didn't quite believe me, but didn't want to admit it. He picked at the rock absently with one fingernail, then shrugged and held it up again. I want you to believe the rock will fall, and that the rock will not fall when I let go of it. He grinned. I went to bed late that night. I had a nosebleed and a smile of satisfaction. I held the two separate beliefs loosely in my mind and let their singing discord lull me into senselessness. Being able to think about two disparate things at once, aside from being wonderfully efficient, was roughly akin to being able to sing harmony with yourself. It turned into a favorite game of mine. After two days of practicing, I was able to sing a trio. Soon I was doing the mental equivalent of palming cards and juggling knives. There were many other lessons, though none were quite so pivotal as the Alar. Ben taught me Ben taught me Heart of Stone, a mental exercise that let you set aside your emotions and prejudices and let you think clearly about whatever you wished. Ben said a man who truly mastered Heart of Stone could go to his sister's funeral without ever shedding a tear. He also taught me a game called Seek the Stone. The point of the game was to have one part of your mind hide an imaginary stone in an imaginary room. Then you had another, separate part of your mind try to find it. Practically, it teaches valuable mental control. If you can really play Seek the Stone, then you are developing an iron-hard alar of the sort you need for sympathy. However, while being able to think about two things at the same thing, sorry, about two things at the same time is terribly convenient, the training it takes to get there is frustrating at best and at other times rather disturbing. I remember one time I looked for the stone for almost an hour before I consented to ask the other half of me where I'd hidden it, only to find I hadn't hidden the stone at all. I had merely been waiting to see how long I would look before giving up. How, have you ever been annoyed and amused with yourself at the same time? It is an interesting feeling, to say the very least. Uh, it's, an it's an interesting feeling, to say the very least. Another time, I asked for hints and ended up jeering at myself. It's no wonder that many arcanists you meet are a little eccentric, if not downright cracked. As Ben had said, sympathy is not for the weak of mind. All right. And we'll stop there for tonight. Pardon me. Oh, I like this book. It's very easy to get a feel for the characters. The author does a good job of describing them in a way that helps you get a sense of their personality. Rather than just giving you a list of personality traits, uh, he shows you in the way that you get to know normal people, which is to show them a set of actions in various circumstances, and then you can start to get a feel for how they will act and what sort of person they are. It's an interesting thing, the way we determine what sort of people are around us. We look at others and see their actions and make assumptions about their character. But we look at ourselves and we see a list of things that led up to an event. The example I've heard of this is if you see your coworker kicking his desk, you might think, oh, he's an angry person, especially if you don't know that coworker very well. But he is kicking his desk in frustration, thinking about how um, his car wouldn't start that morning and how his wife has been sleeping with another man and uh, a whole host of other things that make it perfectly reasonable to be kicking your desk in frustration. We don't see that history trailing along behind people. And so we have to make character judgments to predict what they might do in the future. Sort of a harsh reality to think about, but, but we are a lot harder on ourselves in the same way as well. We look back on our histories and see all the times we were malicious or all the times we failed to do what we set out to do. We think of ourselves as failures or as 
as bad people. But other people, they see us. They see us being kind to someone. We see that as we're kind because we feel guilty for all the times we weren't kind. But a person who doesn't have our history in mind, they look at us and see us being kind, or they see us being cruel, or they see us being whatever way we're being. And they only see that moment, so they can only judge us by that moment. One thing I think helps is to separate your present self from your past self and compare and say, have I become a different person? Would I do the same sorts of things today that I did back then? And if you can rightfully answer no, if you can say no, I would not do the same things today that I did then, then you can let that other person go. You can stop feeling bad about them because they're not you. You're a different person entirely now. Well, maybe not entirely, but, but pretty close. Two people can be very similar, you know, without being the same. I think it would be really cool to be able to split my mind, like it's described in the book, to be able to think about two things at once. It would be very convenient. I suppose there are people who can do that. I'm not one of them. I would have a hard time playing any of those mental games as well. I um, I think I have aphantasia, which um, means I don't really have mental pictures. It's like it's like your imagination is mostly or totally blind. You just have to imagine by thinking about the concepts of things or remembering the feeling of, of something. Even the feeling of looking at something. That might be an odd thing to say, but I think that looking at things produces a certain feel. The way places have a certain feel to them. Looking at something has a certain feel. But as far as picturing it in my mind, that's something beyond me right now. I sometimes wonder if that was a result of my depression. I, I suffer from clinical depression. Major depressive disorder. I feel like I used to be able to picture things with more clarity. In any case, I still enjoy books, the feeling, the, the places that come alive in my mind. Until tomorrow, have a good night.